Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's July 26th, 1875. And another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Aria, Rebecca, and Ali, the Retrospectors. Whoa, Black Bart, bam a lamb. It's certainly not how Charles E. Bowles would have announced his arrival when he came to rob your stagecoach. Because although he was nicknamed Black Bart, outside of his criminal activities, he was a natally dressed, quietly spoken gentleman with good manners, intelligence and style. And it was on this day in 1875 in Calaveras County that he robbed his first stagecoach. And he brought a bit of that nattiness in the form of a fancy black derby hat, but it was slightly offset by the fact that he was wearing a flower sack over his head with holes cut out for the eyes. So he probably didn't look terribly stylish on the day. Either way, his first robbery almost didn't go very well because a passenger drew his revolver and was about to shoot him. The driver hesitated before throwing down the strong box that Black Bart had asked for. But at this stage, Black Bart glanced towards the hillside and yelled, if he makes a move, give him hell, boys, and gestures at this thing that then the guards look up and they see these gun barrels sticking out of the nearby bushes. They then decide to comply. They hand over the strong box to Black Bart. And at this stage, a terrified woman in the stagecoach, she throws out her purse and Black Bart returns it to her with a bow, proving his gentlemanliness. He then cracks open the box with an axe and makes his escape on foot. And steals their worldly possessions. What a gentleman. (laughs) (laughs) But he didn't take anything from the passengers, only from the stagecoach. So, you know, he was stealing from the man and not from the people. And importantly, when the guards later looked up to find out what these rifle barrels were, they were actually just sticks tied to branches. Yeah, they had just survived their encounter with the West's weirdest outlaw. And if (laughs) You know, you're picturing him, he's got his bowler hat, he's got his long duster coat, he's got impeccable manners. He told the stagecoach driver, please throw down the box. Uh, And he almost certainly doesn't have a southern accent, even though both Ari and I I reach for that because he was from New York. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well... Interestingly, if he fits the stereotype, the English eccentric, it's because he was English, at least by birth. His parents emigrated from Norfolk when he was a small child. They went to farm in New York State. And then after that, he sort of had a life like a Forrest Gump of the mid-1800s. So first, age 20, he joined the gold rush. He went out to California twice with his brothers. He settled down, got married, was living in Illinois. And then, age 33, he joined the Union Army and took part in the Civil War. So he really was witnessing all of these important moments in American life. And then he decides to go out West. (laughs) Although he never went to the White House and drank Dr. Pepper, as far as I can see. (laughs) 
Just one final detail on his life that is worth mentioning is that he... Final detail? We're only two minutes in. (laughs) Are we not wrapping up now? I'm done. (laughs) But no, after the war, he returned to his family. So he'd got married. He had two daughters. And he tried farming in Iowa, but failed at it, and then headed off to try gold mining again. And he wrote from Montana to his wife to tell her that he was coming home soon, but actually changed his mind and never returned to his family. Perhaps because at this stage, he'd built this crazy double life. Yes, double life is right, isn't it? Because that sending money to his wife dried up after a while and she'd assumed he was dead and only found out that he wasn't when he got arrested later for robbing stagecoaches. And so you just think, was this kind of like a rebellion? Continuing to indulge his like artistic impulses, we'll get to that in a moment, because he'd also been a school teacher for a while. <laughs> but also turning his back on, I guess, the rather conservative life that he must have had with his wife, with four kids. This was adventure which I guess is something that you get into gold mining for originally, and maybe he'd got a bit of illusion with that. Mm. Well, we do have a bit of a clue as to his motivation, because the last letter that he wrote to his wife, which was in 1871, he described a run-in with agents of Wells Fargo, which was the company that was providing banking and courier services in the West at this time, think stagecoaches full of gold, and describing his resentment of the company. And all the stagecoaches that he targeted were Wells Fargo stagecoaches. So he started leaving these short poems, which he signed Black Bart the Poe numeral eight <laughs> the poet very modern yeah, that is, it yeah. Is. it's quite text, text speak, speak. Yeah. yeah in the wild west spelt w1ldw3s <laughs> yeah and the most famous of his poems went like this i've labored long and hard for bread for honor and for riches but on my corns too long you've tread you fine-haired sons of bitches <laughs> which was ironic because according to victims of the robberies well, i don't even want to say victims i think people who were privileged enough to meet him They all said he was well-spoken, faultlessly polite, especially to ladies. He never used coarse language and he never took any personal possessions from passengers. In fact, at one point, he paid a man $50 for his gun, which he was admiring as he was in the process of holding up the stagecoach. That's lovely. (laughs) But if you're falling under the spell, I can tell you're falling under the spell of Black Bar, you're not the only one, because when he took off his flower sack after a hard day at work and headed home, it was to San Francisco's Webb Hotel, where he posed as a successful mining engineer and apparently enjoyed a really brisk social life. He was impeccably groomed. He had an impressive grey moustache. Just the other thing, he was 46 Mm. at the time of the first robbery. So he was getting on before he even started. He would wear a gold watch chain and a diamond stick pin and apparently was just going around, you know, charming widows, etc., with his act of being as elegant successful businessman which in a way he was well yeah exactly it's not really an act is it no just wasn't giving them all the details (laughs) and that's really important because people have later assessed that the secrets to his success were centrally that he never confided in anyone so he just had this massive secrecy about what he was up to some of the other things that made him successful apparently were that he never robbed a stagecoach with an armed guard he walked on back roads and camped out apparently he was an astonishingly powerful walker reportedly capable of walking 40 or 50 miles through the backcountry in a single day so he often just outwalked his pursuers well he never (laughs) robbed a stagecoach with an armed guard until he did and that's what led to him ultimately getting arrested this is true so he got shot because if you turn up and there is an armed guard and you've got a fake gun and you say pass me the box even if you say please even if you leave a poem (laughs) (laughs) the guy with the gun might shoot you and that's what happened so he got shot and fled and dropped a whole load of personal possessions, which then led Wells Fargo's chain of private detectives to be able to work out who he was. And what gave him away 
was a handkerchief. His handkerchief had written on it the mark F.X.0.7. So romantic, so stylish, so sophisticated. <laughs> We're looking for a robot, boys. <laughs> <laughs> this was what was known as a laundry mark, and that was used in laundry services to tell workers who owned the item before and after it was washed, and therefore it was traceable so they could give it back to them. And it still bore the mark, and through that, then the detectives were able to track it to Black Bart. Yeah, the investigation was being led by a guy called James Hume, working with Henry Nicholson Morse. Formerly, they had both been among the West's premier lawmen, both acting as private detectives now. But James Hume had actually been tracking Black Bart for years at this point, and he did have a really good idea of what he looked like. And the reason for that is that Black Bart, the reason he was such a prodigious walker was that he was terrified of horses and never rode one. And imagining at a time, you know, the West is quite sparsely settled. He yeah. had to do quite a lot of walking. And yeah. this was a huge disadvantage. Carrying a big box full of money as well. Yeah, exactly. Like creeping through on tiptoe with a big stripy sack of swag. Yeah. This meant that there were plenty of witnesses who remembered seeing a stranger passing through their town near the time that the crimes had been committed. And so they were able to give a really detailed description of him. So it must have been very frustrating at this point for James Hume because he knew exactly who he was after. And he channeled all of that energy into pursuing the identity of the laundry which had handled this handkerchief. This kind of legwork was completely unknown at the time. This was just not something that detectives did. Hume and Morse went to each of San Francisco's 90 laundries and eventually an owner was able to identify the handkerchief as belonging to a customer who went by the name C.E. Bolton. How ironic that legwork was what undid the prodigious walker. (laughs) (laughs) The talent is wasted here and not on Pulp Fiction novels, Arian. Isn't it? (laughs) So then Hume and Morse had to go and confront Bowles, his real name. And so they arranged a meeting as if they were going to come and talk to him about mining. And during then the meeting, it turned into an interrogation through the course of which Bowles' cover story just fell apart and he lost his temper and they arrested him on the spot. And what gave him away in the end, fittingly enough, was another eccentric decision that he had made, which was to carry around a Bible given to him by his wife, the same wife he had abandoned, and it was inscribed with his real name. So the whole C. Bolton, charming mining man was completely blown apart then. But nonetheless, police, once again, people were being captivated by Black Bart. Mm. Their notes for the interrogation read more like some kind of tribute to him. They noted that (laughs) Bowles, quote, exhibited genuine wit under most trying circumstances and was extremely (laughs) proper and polite in behaviour. Well, I mean, what's extraordinary is not that he was an outlaw who never shot someone, but that he lived in the West and had never shot someone. You know, 1875, he's walking around areas of the world which were dangerous, and even if he wasn't engaged in dangerous pursuits himself, it's kind of extraordinary that he'd get to that age in that place and had not shot anybody. Particularly rolling into town with masses of gold in his possession and trying to deposit it in banks. You know, this is dangerous behaviour. Anyway, who else was charmed by him? Well, the judges who tried him, because he was eventually sentenced to a six-year term in St. Quentin Prison. I'm guessing his witness statement didn't end, you fine head sons of bitches. (laughs) (laughs) He probably left that bit out. (laughs) But after serving just four years, he was then paroled for good behaviour. For charming behaviour, surely. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, handsome and well-dressed (laughs) behaviour. Tomorrow. And how could they keep those prices so low? Because you didn't have to be a chef to cook in the kitchen. Love the show? Support the show. Patreon.com slash Retrospectors. Part of the ACAST Creator Network. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.